You are in the Grotto Pod. So am I. So is Bridget. We're all here. Uh, it's sweltering today it's in the Grotto Pod. Ready, uh, hot. It's nowhere near as hot as it was on BART yesterday, though. Let me tell you that, listeners who may or may not live in San Francisco, I got on a BART train yesterday, and it was 130 degrees. On the BART train? Is there no air conditioning? And 100% humidity. There usually is, but I think something had happened. It was a a scene. Anyways. That sounds like New York. I just want to say, though, I was on a bike on Sunday, and Mm. it was 104, and I thought I was going to die. You might have. Be careful. This is not normal. Be very careful. I kept saying to Roy... Where is everyone? Is it the zombie yeah. apocalypse and only we don't They're know? smarter no, than you. They checked the weather. Mm-hmm. They checked their phones. Yeah. I was outdoors as well, and it was very warm, but it was... Lord. I felt loose. Anyways, our guest today is Oscar Villalone. Fun to say. Tell the uh, fans out there what Oscar does for a living. Well, Oscar is the editor, uh, managing editor of an institution in San Francisco. Um, I think it might be one of the oldest literary magazines on the West Coast, Ziziva. Established in 1985 by Howard Junker. Yep. And Howard Junker, did you ever submit? I did, yeah, and he wrote real nice rejections. I know, he wrote the (laughs) nicest rejections in the world, and he would always end it with, onward, with an exclamation point. I actually kept the, I got a rejection, but I kept it for a long time. I think I might have mine, too. And um, I realized a couple of months ago that I had started writing onward at the end of emails, and I remembered suddenly where I'd gotten it Ah. from Howard Junker. That's nice. Well, Howard turned over the reins in 2011, Mm -hmm. I believe it was. To Laura Kogan. Laura Kogan, editor-in-chief. Oscar, uh, the managing editor, which I assume from having been a manager, managing editor of a magazine in the past means he's the guy with his hands on everything. Yep, I think so. He does the dirty work. He's been involved, uh, more than involved. He has been a, um, a linchpin. Is that the correct term of art? I guess better than being a lynch mob. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of the literary community in San Francisco, though, for years, he was correct. at the Chronicle. Chronicle uh, doing a uh, book editor. Uh, Book editor, mm-hmm. a book editor at the Chronicle, uh, member of the uh, board of directors of the National Book Critics Circle. Uh, I think um, he still is a juror for the California Book Awards. Yeah, he's he is Just books, books, books. And yet, you would never know that by Anthony Bourdain's because um, he is Anthony Bourdain's old friend, his old friend Oscar, according to, to Tony. Oh, Tony. Yeah, Tony. We'll see if he refers to him as Tony. That is the question that's really on everyone's mind, is if you are Anthony Bourdain's old friend, what sort of scenes of bacchanalia and and ritual sacrifice have you seen? So Oscar must have lived in New York, which we don't know. We don't know. Or maybe Anthony Bourdain, Tony, made that up. Maybe he did. Because when he didn't mention books at all, I thought, how can you introduce Oscar to a national (laughs) or international viewing audience and not mention he's a literary star? Wouldn't it be funny if he just happened to be at the restaurant when Tony got there? Yeah. And he seemed charismatic. Uh, Do you think people are wondering what the hell we're talking about? You can go and find an episode from the first season of Anthony Bourdain's, is it called Layover? I don't know, 24 hours? 24 hours, 30 hours, something. Uh, I found it just by, I was Googling Oscar Villalone, and I found IMDb, an entry as himself. I went, oh, okay, interesting. (laughs) Ah. Oscar as Anthony's old friend. Yep. But that's not really what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'm really interested in learning about the ins and outs of running a literary magazine. Uh, and I want to know the tricks, the insides. The tricks Is there an in? inside yeah. scoop? All you writers out there might want to know if there's any magic bullet, yeah. uh, that magic formula to getting in. Yeah, like if you format your letter a certain way, is that like mm-hmm. you get in one pile? And if you do it a different way, you get in a different pile? Well, I've always maintained that the best query letter starts out with, Hi, remember 
me from high school? Oh, yeah. That would be okay. Although that might also be the worst way if you actually know the person from high school. Depending on how you were in high school. I think I don't my think case, that would work for me. No, no not me either. Go, not at all. You jerk. I'm not publishing you. Finally, yeah. the shoe's on the other foot. Uh, I'm also interested in the challenges of running a literary magazine in the digital age. And in San Francisco, dear Lord. And in pricey San Francisco. And they are like in the heart of San Francisco. I believe they're right above Zoetrope. Or uh, no, above, what's the cafe? Uh, Zoetrope is in that same building. Right, the Flatiron Building. Is that right? I think so. Is that where Zizaba is? Or mm, I might have that wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think, think I, I remember may. a Post Street address. Oh, it is Post Street. Actually, that is where it is. I have mixed no two things up. No Francis Ford Coppola connection Okay, whatsoever. I made a completely oh, erroneous statement. However, both are downtown. I'm very glad you got that I know. Maybe he'll never listen and he won't find us out. Well, uh, so there's going to be a lot on the table today. Uh, it's just about time for Oscar to arrive, and it's time to open the door because it's already sweltering. I feel bad for him. It's yeah, he's he doesn't know what what awaits. He doesn't know what he's walking into. But, um, okay, well, uh, maybe you could maybe him gra- this time. maybe like a literary magazine in the future, the Grotto Pot will be something that only operates in the winter. And we'll say submissions available from October. Oh my gosh, that's genius! May. Except that it's so cool in San Francisco in the summer. Usually, that's true. That's this white is... season. We have two seasons, as you know, white and blue. And white usually happens in July. Is it white? It seems so gray. Well, it's white. I live out there, and it's white. It is just pitch white. It's like really? staring into over in a... Glen Park. Am I not supposed to say where you live? Uh, you can, I guess. You know, okay. I, I haven't had problems with paparazzi yet. But okay. as the ground upon, I can't believe it's so gray. It's so white out there. Because yeah, I live in the Richmond, it's that's surprisingly pretty. white. Let me just say before we uh, cut Bobby. out and get back on topic, on Sunday, never when I was driving back from the East Bay yep. and raging as I watched the temperature climb on the way. Go- that's so unusual for you. On the Bay Bridge, it went from 87 to 94. As I got to the Mission, I was like, 94 degrees. Oh, my God. Turned, headed west between the, the uh, Cesar Chavez exit and my exit, which is about a period of two miles. The temp dropped 16 degrees. Yes, someone was tweeting a picture of the city, a map of the city, and was showing the different temperatures on Sunday. And Mm -hmm. some of them were as low as 59, some were above 100. And the city is seven, famously seven by seven miles. Mm -hmm. So So microclimates galore. But we have our own little microclimate here, and it's called hell. (laughs) Let's go get Oscar and drag him into the fourth circle of it. Okay. Oscar Villalone, mm-hmm. welcome to the Grotto Pod. Oh, thank you. Let me ask you first the question that's been burning on everyone's mind here in the Grotto Pod. <laughs> uh, maybe burning is limited isn't, audience. Burning isn't the right word to use in an area of such condensed heat. But if one is referred to as Anthony Bourdain's old friend, mm-hmm. what sort of bacchanalia and perhaps human sacrifice have you seen? Oh, uh, you know, nothing, nothing special. Um, you know, just beyond the usual debauchery. Yeah, uh, I don't think we. I don't, I'm trying to think if it was ever. No, not really. I mean, well, um, I think uh, there was one time uh, when people were jumping into the pool in the Tonga room. Um, mm. Some guys from his uh, his production team. He loves him some, some Tonga room. I went back mm-hmm. and checked out that episode that you were on mm-hmm. last night because I had just Googled you and I thought IMDb page. Well, that's interesting. I'm on an IMDb page. You are, as yourself. Dear Lord. And it says, as himself. As yes, himself. That's who I play. <laughs> In real life yeah. and on TV. Mm. And I watched it and was quite offended that he didn't tell the world what you do. 
We were both offended for you. Well, that, yeah, it's fine. I think that it's probably better that way for everybody, you know, just to keep a little pro. Speaking of that, do you find that you're a bit of a moving target in San Francisco by the literary hopers? No, no, I've no, not at all. I will say this: I um, after I did uh, Tony's show, I think I did that one. I did another one too. I think that one's for the layover, and then the other one I was saw the just la- for the, the layover one. Yeah. And then for the regular show, uh, before that, uh, no reservations. I have been stopped probably about three or four times on the street because of those shows. That is crazy. By people just yelling my name. (laughs) Imagine if you were Anthony Bourdain. That's why it's it's insanity. Well, but it it is interesting that you said, I don't know if you were joking or not, when you said you want to keep a low profile. But Mm -hmm. I think what Bridget was getting at, in in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. In the literary community, you uh, you occupy a certain, I don't want to say elevated status, but you are a gatekeeper of sorts, or at least perceived as a gatekeeper of sorts. Well, I've been around. Yeah. You know, if you stick around long enough. Um, and you we know, mean people, that in a good way. Yeah, people remember you, I suppose. <clears throat> but uh, you're associated with, I would say, what is the most respected literary magazine in the area. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah, I've been the uh, uh, managing editor there since... Uh, was it 2011? Oh, good. I got January it right in the intro. Yeah. Yeah. Since sharing 2011. Six years. That's a long run. It is. It is. It's, it, it went by very fast. Although that magazine has had a long run. Is it the oldest literary magazine on the West Coast? Or um, I don't know if it's the oldest in the West Coast. I think in, it's the maybe the oldest in the city, although I think there is a free publication in the hate the, the, like a giveaway paper yeah. for poetry. I think that's older than hmm. than Zizova. Um, otherwise, you know, it's what, probably started on mimeograph sheets, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah, but you know, certainly, I think you know, um, you know, yep. Yeah, be, so beyond that, that the the hate publication, the oldest in the city since eighty five. That's not the Oracle, is it? I don't know. I don't know. So Someone told me, and I quickly forgot. It's probably. I'm just assuming it's something that <laughs> hippies came up with, you know, in the yeah. 60s. No, no, it was a, you know, it's a legitimate publication. They published a lot of really good poets. I think it's mostly poetry, hmm. and it uh, originates there in the hate. And I think well, I hope it's still going. I, I believe it is. Actually. That's awesome. Yeah. Tell me this about Zizaba. Uh, so it's been around since '85. Mm-hmm. Do you do you, you don't take online submissions, right? No, we don't. Um, that's just because we'd be overwhelmed completely. Mm. So that's my question. So obviously, it started things coming through regular mail and continues that way now. Mm-hmm. But even with that, what is a, like a normal month when you're in submission season? It's pretty. I mean, it's a lot. Um, we probably get, I think, on average, something like 50 submissions a week. Fifty submissions a week, yeah, on average. And of those submissions, how many would you say are serious submissions? Well, you know, they're all they're all serious and of serious as, intent, yeah. right? You have all the folks who send them. I think they're all serious, but of that, you know, we're only going to publish something like one percent, one or two percent <laughs> of what comes over the transom. Yeah, um, which is still, you know, it's great. Adds up, but you know, we only we put out three issues a year, mm-hmm. and then in each issue, you're talking about. You know, maybe let's say twelve to fifteen poems, and then maybe about another ten prose pieces. So you know, you add that up three times a year. That's you know, it's, it's quite a few. But also, if you're getting two hundred submissions a month, it, right, exactly. That's a, that's a lot exactly. of stuff to sift through. And and how and the staff is is it four plus interns? It's just uh, it's uh, so Laura Kogan, the editor, myself, and recently. 
we hired an editorial assistant, okay. Zach, Zach Ravis. He's our third. And explain to us the difference between what Laura does and what you do. Well, you know, I mean, uh, well, Laura's the editor, so um, she's she's going to work with all the stories that come in and all the poems. You know, she's definitely going to do the um, much of the of the line edits, um, a lot of structural edits. You know, that's that's what she does. She's very good at that. And then um, myself as the managing editor, I'll do some of that too. But then there's just a lot of other things to divvy up. Um, mostly, I'm in charge of running the blog. So getting all those reviews and getting the content for the blog, that's, you know, that makes up my other uh, tasks, you know, a big chunk of my tasks. So you spend a lot of time online then. I mean, because I, I follow mm. you on Twitter. I find you very amusing. Thank you. And, uh, you know, for someone who is ensconced with printed yeah. word, you're spending a lot of time in well, the digital land. I, yeah, but, you know, that's just from, you know, being a former newspaper person. Yeah. So I'm constantly just, you know, you know, uh, scrolling through my timeline, seeing what the news is, which I'm sure everyone's doing now more than ever, just you know, to see what's going to happen. I actually yesterday made Surprise. a commitment. Yes. To, I made a commitment to myself to do that less. I keep doing that, but then I, I break it almost yeah. instantly. It's yeah. hard not to. I'm trying once. Because a, then some new thing happens that I can't believe. You know, at least until this week, the bad stuff was broken up by Warriors information. Yeah. Golden State Warriors information. Sure. So I was and, always looking for that. And now it's just the Giants. And now We're not gone. doing so hot. It's a little We're harsh. not doing so hot. So there's all the screaming. How are we going to get through the summer? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. That is, that is a, alas, that might even be an existential one. Yeah, especially here because it's been, it's been pretty fun here in the summers, mm-hmm. the past few baseball seasons. You know, your team doesn't have to be good for it to be a fun summer. No, you have to beat the Dodgers. and Yes, I agree. <laughs> uh, and also, it's just so fun to go to AT&T Park. And it is. It to is. go watch a baseball I'll game. I like that very much. It's nice, whether they're good or not. Well, okay. So there, we have a lot of we want to unpack about Ziziva itself. Sure. But I also want to get into your story, too, because I'm really interested in the process that you underwent to decide what role you were going to play in the literary community. You know, you... you uh, you were book, a book reviewer at the Chronicle. Mm. You know, you 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 spend. It seems like you've spent a lot of time um, in organizations that publish people. You know, vetting people sure. and, and reading. Uh, well, it's you know, it's it's all a mystery, really. Um, how, does you know, the, find, how does one find their place? Well, it's uh, you know, like the Woody Allen joke: you ninety percent of life is just showing up. Uh, you show up. Um, you know, with the Chronicle, I I, I was the uh, was asked to be the deputy book editor basically because I was on the desk. You know, as a copy editor on, on the date book desk. Okay. And, um, they said, "Well, you know, we need we'll need someone to help you know make the the trains run on time down there. You mm-hmm. know, just through all the practical stuff of just making sure you know the proofs get proofed and everything get you know everything gets done when it should get done, et cetera, et cetera. More of the logistics. And so they just asked me and said. Um, do you want? Would you like to be the deputy book editor? And I said, Well, sure. I mean, but if I don't like it, can I have my old job back? You know, on the date book desk. I'm like, Yeah, sure, go for it. I'm like, Fine. So that's how that happened. Um, I did read a lot. I mean, I think that might have been too. They realized, Why is this guy? He's always reading. So maybe that's a good sign. Well, I was actually just going to ask that up until and after that point. Do you consider yourself a reader first or a writer first? Oh, I think everyone probably should probably except for. for Maybe some exceptions. Everyone probably thinks himself as a reader. I would think, reader first, mm-hmm. and then writer. You know, I think for most people, it's you know, you end up writing because you just can't find the book you want to read. <laughs> that's 
that's what I hope the best reason to write a book yes. is. Yeah. There's no one that book doesn't exist, so I guess I have to do it myself. That story hasn't been told yet. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. Speaking of that story hasn't been told, can you just give us a little bit of your biography? Are you from California? I am from California. I was born in LA and um, I grew up mostly in San Diego. Um, you know, I, um, I uh, uh, graduated with a degree in journalism and political science. From which school? Uh, USC. USC. Yes. Good place to study journalism. Absolutely. Yeah, wonderful. They used to have a journalism school. I think that's gone now. It's not just communi- the Edinburgh School of Communications. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't – I just assumed journalism was under that umbrella. Is it, it not? It, I think it is. I think okay. it is. But the, it. when I was there, the journalism school was completely separate. Right. So when you graduated from there, and that's, that's, a, you mm-hmm. know, that's a good pedigree, mm-hmm. what did you think – how did you think it was going to unfold? Well, I was just going to uh, work in newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and did you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was the, uh, worked at the Glendale News Press. I was the copy editor and news editor editor there. I was the city editor at the Burbank Leader. So you were an editor, not a reporter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what made you decide to go in that direction? Um, well, you know, I, I just enjoyed it. You know, I still very much a, you know, one of the things I took pride in uh, at the Chronicle as being the book editor is realizing you could it's plug and play. You can, as any good newspaper person, could put me in any department. I could do that job. Mm-hmm. So yes, you could edit book reviews, but if you have to go cover a fire, you know how. Um, I don't think it's like that anymore. I, is it? I don't know. I, I don't know either. I have no idea. I don't you know, everyone I shouldn't speak out of turn. Well, everyone, you know, I don't know how it is now, but certainly everyone comes up from the general assignment. Right. Cool. Right. Right. So you have to know. Have some idea. Yeah, exactly. And then you sort of figure out based on what people do in the general assignment, what they what they have a, a um, strength in or <coughs> I guess an aptitude is... for. You say, well, maybe we should direct this person more towards arts or maybe this person I more see. towards or City Hall. or yeah, Exactly. But is there a point where you decide – I'm a better editor than a writer because I know for me it was the other way around. I was an editor and I went, I'm not very good at this. I'm a way better writer. Um, I think it's just a matter of how much work you want to do. Oh, maybe that was it. Yeah, oh, that, could you be know, <laughs> that would be likely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, for the uh, the thing about being an editor, well, number one, um, and I don't think this is the case anymore. But certainly, when I came out of you know when I, when I got when I got out of school in the early '90s. If you wanted to get a job at a paper, it was much easier to do so as a copy editor than mm. it would be as a reporter. You know, right. no one wants to be a copy editor. Everyone wants to be a yeah. reporter. Um, it's scary for one thing, like the buck stops here, kind of absolutely. Scary. Mm-hmm. Mm. But your hours are set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, barring a catastrophe, barring disaster, uh, you're going to work more or less steady hours. You know, In the same place. Absolutely, you know what you're doing every day. You're showing up one place. You can have a life. I mean, the thing about being a reporter early on, you know, you you, real, you have to understand is that it's such a commitment. You don't just work while you're in the office. You're going to be working all the time. You're going to be developing sources. Just, you're going to be taking people out. To some, gonna, that's the fun part. Exactly. Like, I so love the part of not. I only have to go in the office a couple of days a week. There you go. So that's a, you know that's something you have to decide. Like, well, how much time do I want to give to this? And for me, that would really eat into my reading time. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Yeah. I have to say, my one of my favorite jobs I ever had was on the editorial desk, typing in the letters to the editor before scanners, <laughs> because it was so easy yeah. and so rote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think you're on to something. Well, you know, and, you know copy editing Not is that wonderful. Copy that. Well, you know, well, you have to still know yeah. what a piece should read as. I like that reading is a real active verb for you. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean... Um, so you still enjoy it. You still, like, 
50 letters a week. You walk into the office, they're piling up on the desk, yeah. and you don't think, oh, dear God. Well, and he has the bandwidth before you got in here. I said yeah. I've consumed r- roughly 75% of all Golden State Warriors-related yeah. material in the last week. How about you? And he said, about the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you make the time. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, I think, really, it's, I think it's, a, it's a sort of aptitude. You know, you just, I agree. You know, it's, so for me, it's no big deal because coming from newspapers, right. um, I was completely used to it. So I imagine, too, actually, if anyone who started off just in publishing and could deal with that sort of pace and the franticness and the sort of um, the multiple skills that you're going to have, could probably say just as easily into you know a news organization mm-hmm. and be fine mm-hmm. because it's the same sort of pressures, the same sort of demands, and you know, the same sort of sensibility. So it seems like by the time you were tapped at Ziziva, you had already created quite a reputation as a reader. And by that, I mean, you know, you're, you're on the board for the National Book Critics Circle, sure. and you were a juror for the California Book Awards, sure. and you were reviewing books, and you mm-hmm. were reading books. Mm-hmm. Um, so describe to me a little bit about how that went then. How did you get tapped for this job? Um, I think I, I think somehow uh, uh, Laura knew I was out there. I was, mm. Right before that happened, I was, I'd been working at, I was the publisher of McSweeney's. And then, uh, how did I miss that? And I le- well, I was only there for like like five minutes. Oh, okay. And so there you go. I was I was napping. <laughs> and then I was just freelancing, uh, you know, writing reviews, and I think doing some radio stuff too for KQED, uh, uh, on air reviews for the California Report. And I think uh, Laura just knew that was out there and said, "Well, you know, would you be interested in doing this?" And I said, "Sure." Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't tried it before, so let's see. It says a lot that you're both still there. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, you know, I think the, you know, the, the, the work, I think, the, that's been coming out from all the writers has been excellent. You know, we've, um, um, I think we have validated our efforts in the sense of um, all the events we put on, seeing the reaction to people to uh, uh, those events, the, that's to say the turnouts. Um, also, just in the other things that aren't as important but are certainly important. In, at least for the writer, not so much for us, but for the writer, um, best American short story selections, you know, best American uh, nonfiction selections, uh, et cetera, you know, best American non-required, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all that stuff, push cart prices, oh, Henry prizes, all those things that it's good to see because it tells you that you're actually helping the writer, that their work by publishing them, good things And the reader. Happening. And the reader, yeah, yeah. But there's also another element to showing up in all those places, and it's sort of a business type of element. You need to show up in those places, right? It's almost in the literary magazine world, I, I would say that's the equivalent of Academia's publisher parish. If you're not showing – if your stories aren't showing up on those lists, sure, then you're not relevant. In, in some sense, absolutely. I suppose um, in terms of maybe acquiring uh, for – you know, it, figuring into whether an agent is going to acquire you, probably yeah. You know, maybe certainly for academia, um, and just maybe just for the writer, him or herself, mm-hmm. just to say that okay, I'm on the right track. What about getting grants? Is that something that you look for, and do you need it for that? Oh, sure. No, no, you, I, I don't know if we need it for that, but it probably doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, all those things, I mean, they're all tied together. You know, because really, what you're doing with the literary journal, at least what we do, because we're, you know, it's a nonprofit and we're independent. We're not in line with the university. Mm-hmm. Um, very so we're, rare. We're very extremely rare. So you know, we're not a part of a creative pri- writing program or an English department or what have you. Um, is to create some sort of locus. Uh, for the literary culture in the community, some place where people, in this case the West Coast, 
but not just strictly limited to the West Coast, but mostly the West Coast, where the people can see their work get published, um, get some sort of a sense of community, of, of being in communion with other writers, writers of stature, you know, in many cases, but also, uh, you know, writers who are just coming out, emerging writers, you know. So how how cognizant are the people at Ziziva of that I don't want to say responsibility, but role in the writing community. How cognizant are you of what you can do for local oh, writers? You know, do you have workshops? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, we just started workshops. We're going to do them. I think in what are we doing in October? I think and when in November? Is that right? Something Correct. Yeah, we're just starting those, and that's sort of you know a branching out of, of doing that sort of thing. Yeah, we're very uh, cognizant. Um, you know, uh, the journal isn't just a journal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it can be if you want it to be. It could just be a publication. And I think, you know, um, maybe, you know, if you have tens of thousands of subscribers, that's a good thing to do. I mean, if you, you know, if that, maybe that's enough. But, um, you know, for us, you know, and uh, it's as important to have some sort of engagement, some sort of wider engagement. Not just in the workshops, but just by doing all these events. We do almost like two dozen events a year. Mm-hmm. Um, which wow, is, I didn't realize there were so many. That's, oh, yeah. That's no, yeah. No, no. It's, it's, it's a lot. And then and you had a party on Friday night. Sold right. that party. That was sold out when I went to yes. my ticket. Um, the fun, yeah, we had our fundraiser at the makeout room. And that, I mean, that was grand. I mean, that was a... You know, Daniel Handler dancing with everyone. What's there not to like? What's there not to like? You know, um, people like, uh, you know, uh, celebrating uh, people like Paul Yamazaki uh, from City Lights, the book buyer there for, you know, for decades, and Kai Miller from The Chronicle, and Ruth Madievsky is a wonderful uh, poet, emerging poet. Um, It's a good time. That's the sort of thing that you want. You want people to, to, to see each other and support each other. Now, you mentioned, though, that it, that is a fundraiser, and I was thinking as you were explaining all these workshops, these aren't money-making propositions. So it's unpleasant to have to deal with, but how much of a concern is how do we get the money to make this thing work? How do we make ends meet? Do we make a profit? Those sorts of – and they have to be considerations, right? Sure. I mean, you know, this is – well, it's, it is a nonprofit for a reason. Um, <laughs> there is no profit. Absolutely, there is no profit. So you're constantly, yeah, you know, that's that's something you have to juggle. You are constantly um, keeping in mind uh, the mission of the journal, but you also have to figure out ways of well, how can we bring in a little more scratch, you know, to help pay for everything. And did you know that would be part of the equation when you took the job? Well, sure, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, you know, it's just it's just how it is. There's no, I mean, there's no easy solution, um, you know, beyond. Suddenly, getting you know like fifty thousand new subscribers or something like that. Um, how many subscribers? I don't know if you can say how many subscribers you have, but if you were to give an estimate of submission to subscriber, oh, it's, it's you know it's always greater. You know, it's mm-hmm. always this is this is, and I guarantee you, uh, even for larger journals, it's always the same. There, there are by far more people sending you submissions than there are subscribers. It's, oh wow. And, and but that tells you again, you know, part of what your role is. You know, you you know, it's 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 um, um, you're part of an ecosystem, and so there's there's uh, the ecosystem in the sense that you're going to hopefully uh, raise the visibility of various writers through your publication. You edit them as well as you can. Hopefully, you you do a very good job of that, and you present their work as well as you can. So that they may, you know, so that their careers may flourish, and also, uh, you know, you, to give an outlet too for more established writers, so they can come in and try different things, maybe, or just work that couldn't find a place somewhere else for no reason having to do with the quality, but just because 
of you know the constraints of scheduling you know different you know, stories and essays and larger publications and things fall through or things get held and you know this sort of thing um, you know it's a space you really are creating a space and I think that's important because I think uh, sometimes you forget and it's easy to forget depending on what the publication is some of them I don't think are as inviting as others that they really do serve the writer and the reader and um, as long as they're around they can do that job and so for people I think it's a matter of figuring out you know are these things worth supporting but you are also you are a gatekeeper though oh yeah and there's got to be a little bit of psychic weight that comes with that, with having to say no to so many people. Well, you know, uh, not so much for me, uh, just because of the newspapers. Um, <laughs> also, you get that many, obviously, many submissions. You're going to have to turn away well, sure, from the work. Right. Sure, the way it sure. Is. You know, and it's, it's not, you know, you don't um, – um, the ones that are clearly not ready, that's never a problem. Um, it's always the one, and they're not a lot. It's always the pieces are very close, but they're mm-hmm. not there. Right. And you know, and it's easier to say. It's still easy to say no for those because you know the problem isn't something that you could fix as an editor. There's something that the writer hasn't quite explored yet, yeah. and then until you know he or she does, there's nothing really you can do about it. Now, as Bridget and I were talking about before you got here, we both received very. Positive and inspiring <laughs> rejections from Howard Junker back we both in remember the eighties. Oh, yes, yeah, we yes. kept them. Yeah, sure, I, I Howard. Yes, mine's from. I'm going to say maybe eighty nine. Mine's probably right around that same yeah. time. Mm. But have you continued? Or was that yes something that was done on purpose with with Howard? Yeah, probably. Howard, was that I just mean, his personality? I think both. I mean, you know, he. One day there probably will have to be like some sort of truth and reconciliation committee on. <laughs> On Howard Junker's various re, uh, you know rejection slips. Here's the thing: it was before computers were widely mm-hmm. used. Yeah. So my rejection note was a note. Yeah, mine too. And that's when getting like a handwritten and note that was, was like a, big a ass huge deal. deal. Man. Yeah, I was like yeah. 23 years old. Me too. Onward. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, I don't. I, you know, you can I wouldn't even try to speak for Howard and understand uh, what some of those. What the thinking was for some of those letters. I, I really cherished it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, they're, actually, they're special. Well, my question was, have you gone forward with that? Do you still try to put that sort of thought into each rejection? We do for the ones that are very close. Mm-hmm. Hey, we got <laughs> so close. Maybe we were close. <laughs> yeah. um, we, do, we do for those. And it's just to say that, you know, we think you're almost there, but it's not quite ready. Um, we do that, but... You know, I think it's hard for people outside of the writing world to understand uh, with a magazine like Ziziva, which they can look at maybe the, um, you know, the subscription base, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, and say, oh, well, that's not so much compared to People Magazine. Or oh, whatever. no, yeah. Um, you know, you're telling your parents, oh, I got into Ziziva, and they look, and they're maybe not as impressed as they should be. But mm-hmm. for other writers, when you get into a good literary magazine, it's huge. Absolutely. It, is yeah. life, it Absolutely. literally is life-changing. But it, it, it's almost like a confirmation that we live in a world that doesn't make sense to anyone else. Yeah. Sure. I mean, these, these little literary magazines, I keep thinking of what they used to say about Velvet Underground Records. Absolutely. You know, they sold 500, and right. 500 of those people started bands. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Or then, you know, as uh, they later on said, I think Lou Reed ruined that, as many people bought our albums as we influenced, we've been... <laughs> So yeah, rich. Yeah. yeah. Super rich. Yeah. Uh, what Roxanne Gay's new memoir, she talks about telling her parents different magazines that she'd gotten into. And mm-hmm. they, uh, they're not mean, but they don't care at all. No, and so they're totally shocked when yeah. she gets a book deal. Well, I don't know if it's a question of that. I mean, I don't know how many civilians you deal with socially. Mm-hmm. But when you deal with them, the so idea fair. that 
well, yeah, it's a very prestigious thing that I worked months to do, and I didn't get paid. Yeah. And yeah. then I think, well, that doesn't make any sense. And Wait. for us, I think that makes total sense, unfortunately. Well, we at the very least pay something. It's, right. It's not a lot, but it's, it's at least decent beer money. We, <laughs> we do pay. Um, but it's craft look, beer money. you know, working in newspapers and you know, being the editor of the book section of the Chronicle for when I was, I was completely aware to most people this means nothing. And that's to say we're not on their radar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to say that, um, you know, being – the, the book editor was kind of like, you know, let's say being the king of midget car racing. If you're, if you're into midget cars, it's fantastic. If you're not... You're the king of the midgets. You just gave me a nice, nice title for this podcast. Yeah, you, couldn't, you couldn't care less. Um, you know, and that's, that's a fact. And I think, you know, for most people, I mean, that's, that's just how it is. Um, so, you, you know, this is why it's so important actually to write what you need to write, you know, the, to focus on the artistry, to focus on what it is that's important because it really except for, again, a handful of cases, um, you're not going to get some sort of fame. I mean, was it, as uh, Gore Vidal was said, that, you know, a famous author is an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we talk about writer famous all the time. Yeah, well, precisely. There's a lot of them. From actual famous. Yeah, you could, oh. you could find, you know, barring, say, the Stephen Kings and the Daniel mm-hmm. Steeles of the world, and I mean, they're in the J.K. Rowling. And they're just they're exceptions that prove the rule. You, you can literally count them on one exactly. Hand. You can get someone who you think is hugely famous as a writer, a literary writer, let's say, and take them to Union Square. And I guarantee you, no one will know. Ninety-nine out of a hundred people will not know who that person is. And the one who does will be shocked to find that they live in a studio yeah, apartment. Exactly. Hey, yeah. as happy as I am that I think I've lost five pounds in sweat over the last mm-hmm. twenty. Should we minutes, take a break? Might be a good time to take a break and okay. open that door for okay, a couple. Sure. Okay. All right. And it's Friday. No, it's not Friday. No, it's, no, it's, it's Tuesday. 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 It feels like but a Friday. But it's summer vacation. So oh, that's why. That <laughs> must be why Friday came out of my mouth. That's anyway, I turned. Summer. I went back to rolling with the door because you were saying something really interesting about writer famous and how it conflates with careers. And well, yeah, these things are fickle. These things are very, very fickle. I mean, um, you know, why does someone become huge and someone not? I mean, to a degree, it has a lot to do with quality. But at some point, you know, everyone is very good at a certain level. It becomes the vagaries of the marketplace. It becomes zeitgeist. It becomes a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Look, uh, at one point, you know, Edna Ferber was huge. Right. Edna Ferber's who talks about Edna Ferber? No one. Th- right. Although I think I might have taught one of her books once to yeah, sophomores yeah. when I was teaching high school. Yeah, yeah. It's good books. Giant's a wonderful book. Um, but you but know. also there's this sense when you get into this as a profession or as a career. I don't think anybody is 22 years old wanting to be a professional writer or professional reader mm-hmm. and thinking, you know what I think I'll do my whole life? Struggle financially. I think I'm going to commit to that. But I think I think people are aware that it is not a necessarily sure. a lucrative path. It's not like saying, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to do this and mm. check these boxes and then this is going to be the outcome. You know you're risking it. The thing is, people, it's like playing the lottery. You think you have a shot. Right. Absolutely. And right. And in my MFA program, fickle. everybody thought they were going to be the one. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, you, you all do have a shot. Right. Mm-hmm. But it will sort itself out in a very, you know, sort of uh, ruthless way. Good word. <laughs> but if you're in it for the money, there's, well, there you go. that's just yeah. ridiculous. There it, you go. I think, I, think, you know, I think people are in it for something deeper. I don't I think, think they, anyone's in it for the money. I have to be true. There's probably, there probably well, are. There I probably think are. Younger people yeah. might be. Once you get to a certain uh, age, you're a little bit younger than us, mm-hmm. but right around this age, if you're still in it for the money, then you're fooling yourself. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's you know, think, cast yourself back to your, you know, those, 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 the days of, of youth 
where everything seems so possible. Mm-hmm. All and it, and it actually is. All doors are open. Uh, your fate has not been decided. And as a you know, and as a as a aspiring literary artist, I mean that's exciting. It, the possibilities indeed are there. And there are writers that you can look at and say, boy, mm-hmm. you know, Danielle Steele lives in a huge mansion on top of Pacific Heights. But are people saying? Who are saying, um, I want to be a writer, saying, I want to be like Danielle Steele? No. They're no, saying, I want not. to be like George Saunders. Or, or they know, think, else. you know, or they were like me, and I thought, well, I'll be to writers what Kurt Cobain was to musicians. Yes, that can no be. No compromise, yeah. got rich anyway. Yeah. So I got the first part. Died yeah. young. Yes. Yeah, Who's died that? too young, but because yeah. he was miserable. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the challenges that face you guys, meaning Zizava, mm-hmm. in the digital age. Mm. And how that's really changed how literary magazines are composed and consumed and what you guys have done specifically because you don't have a huge online presence. No. um, The magazine does not exist digitally. Right. It's just a blog. Right. And we just did that on purpose um, essentially because um, uh, we don't think it translates. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not something we're interested in. And frankly, for what we do, you know, for for purpose – so – there's two reasons. One, if you want to look at the economics of it, it's ridiculous. You're not going to get substantially more people because you're the digital version of a literary journal. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. just number one. That's not going to happen. Number two, that's not how we want it to be consumed. That's not. It's not meant to be experienced that way. We enjoy print. We want to put out a, a print product. We like what that brings. We like you know the 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 the, the, the physicality of it, if you will. Um, these things are all important. It's nice to be able to send a copy to a contributor, and it's physical. It mm-hmm. exists. It's real. You could shelve it with the rest of your books. And how does that hold up among the rest of the industry? I know there's, you know, literary journals that are only online. Yeah. But ones that are wow. print, you know, the 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 Zotropes and the Plowshares of the world. Yeah. What I are think they Paris doing online? Review is not online either. I don't think so. I think they do only excerpts. Only the interviews. Right. The interviews are available and there might be excerpts yeah. here and there. But they do, you know, what we do, which is we run, you know, author Q&As, we run book reviews, we run various essays online. Um, but... The stuff that's in the journal, we keep in the journal. Um, you know, I, I I don't know what the thinking is for the other ones. To be to be perfectly honest, I there's there's a lot of good reasons for doing them, um, but it it's not. I think you really have to love that space to do it. So if we were internet people, uh, that's to say, if we were device people then it would make sense to want to reproduce it in that medium. Mm-hmm. It's kind of great that you're print people in San Francisco. It, it, well, sure. You yeah. know, um, right. You were the, uh, was it the uh, Farriers, uh, yes. you know, uh, you know, at the Indy 500. Um, All of a sudden you're artisans. A- absolutely. Right. Start and, making but, your but it was paper. always artisanal. See, that, this is the question. So it's, for me, the thing about online that's intriguing is that it really lends itself to mass consumption. Mass mm-hmm. consumption or niche, I suppose. That's to say, what you're working on is so specific and so esoteric, it probably may not even be worth printing, but it may be worth creating a website and, and, and putting it on there because, you know, maybe all you want to reach is about 150 people or something like that. Um, and the opposite of that is that you want to reach millions, you know, and that right. the most effective way of doing it, the most cost-effective way of doing that would be to do it online because, no you know, paper. exactly, precisely. Yeah. Well, we're not, you know, we're neither in those space, we're not in either one of those uh, um, uh, polls. So, it makes sense just to stick with what we do, which is to say, which is you know uh, the, the print. And um, and is this an ongoing conversation? 
Not really. I mean, I think Laura and I are pretty firm about that. Mm-hmm. And again, it has nothing to do with any, well, beyond what I've already said, but you also have to just take into consideration that um, uh, print is what we know. You know, we're not, um, we're not, it, it's, it is artism. It is, uh, Jason Epstein, when he wrote that book, Book Business, when he's talking about this stuff, he's, it's always been a cottage industry. This has always been a cottage industry literature. Um, you know, the Random House really was a house. Um, I think there's in there, uh, there's an anecdote, he says, where Auden was crashed on his couch in, the, uh, in his office because you know, he, he didn't have somewhere else to go. So he just, he just kind of crashed there for a while. It was, it's very, you know, the, the cells were, were, not, were not huge. You look at the FSG book that came out not too long ago, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, printing writers, uh, publishing the work of writers who you know are not going to sell more than two, 300 copies. Our mm-hmm. Hogarth Press I sure. think, was literally a printing press in Virginia Woolf's house that they were <laughs> ringing out the pages on. Yeah. Some pretty good books. There's, I mean, there's, there's a similarity there to the art world. Of course. Yeah. 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 And, and I would say there's well, a similarity in Hogarth Press to people doing online journals now because you really can do the Mickey Rooney let's put on a show. Mm-hmm. Because there's no startup costs, and you just start publishing people. Completely. I mean, but and, and I mean, there's great magazines in that space. There's great magazines that are print. What is evident, and what you know, the demise of print has, or the demise of reading, let's say that, has been predicted for a couple of decades now, mm. and it just gets to be stronger. And I just see more and more great narrative coming out and being able to be shared in well, any medium. Well, let me ask you this, Oscar. The the decline of reading, I don't Mm. think, is that people don't read. It's that people can't read things the same length that they used to. Are you finding that? Do you publish shorter pieces now? We publish all sorts. We publish pieces that are a page long. We publish pieces that are over 35 pages long. But has that changed in the last 10 years? Not really. I mean, look, you have to have a reason to read. Mm -hmm. Are you curious about your world or are you not? And that is something that you, know, you, as a person, have to figure out. I can, you know, this is the only reason why one why why one reads. Or do you or do you or do you want to be aware of your time here? Do you want to be aware of your place in society and how society works or doesn't work? That is it. It is you know it is it is literally that. It is not anything more than that. I think. Um, if there is a real constraint, I think it's time. People don't have mm-hmm. time to read. And that, that kind of ties into the link. But I mean, time just to be quiet and to read. I mean, you know, not having vacation. Have you, know? you noticed some websites right. and their news websites have started putting how long it'll take you to read the story? Yes, which is ridiculous. Because I think what they should say, like, is this interesting? <laughs> Did it's you only three that, minutes um, interesting. Yes, because you know what? Uh, the Robert Caro uh, books are extremely long to read, and they're in education. They're well worth your time. Yeah. Or what about Harry Potter? I mean, those books were so long by the end when they were getting unedited. Um, <laughs> but they still sold like well, crazy. Absolutely, people because them. people wanted to right. read them. That you make time for what you want to do. Um, did you read that David Eulen book? Is that what it's called? His name? Yes, Eulen? David Eulen. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called something, Why We Read. Well, I can't remember, but it sure. was about being a book reviewer and fi- even himself finding that he did not have the same kind of concentration for reading as he had once had. Uh, well, um, that's just, we're just getting older. Thank you, iPad. Yeah. No, it's that iPad. Oh, it's the I- it's sure, sure. Me. I found myself reading a print book the other day and looking to the top of the page to see what time it was. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, what am so I you doing? you want to hear something interesting? I, I had one of the first Kindles, and I actually mm. love having a Kindle because I like bringing a bunch of books with me when I go places. That is nice. But 
what I found over time was that I can't read fiction on the Kindle. I can read nonfiction. It's hard. It's true. It's so strange. Why would that be? So I almost all, well, actually, I almost always buy both a print copy and a Kindle copy. Is it because of the bar telling you how much is left? No, I don't know. I just can't. I don't. Well, something, something psychically doesn't happen where I, can, I rest into I can read, the dream. I can read genre fiction on my iPad. Mm. I can read Don Winslow books all over the place on my iPad. But I can't read a quiet, a book of short stories, a uh, book where nothing really happens, which is my favorite kind of book. Yeah. I there can't really do that. There might be something there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, about, you know, different, how you want to spend time with a book or what it requires of you. Yeah. But I agree with you. You're traveling. You can just load oh, a bunch man, of stuff I on. I love doing that. One. But I will say, if I really like a book, I always want to have it also. There's that. So I often buy two copies, the Kindle copy and the hard copy. Well, that is true, because now I've got like 30 books on my iPad that I can't give to anyone. Yeah. yeah. You know, I like giving people books. I like having it a library. It's a racket. You know, I like having a library. I mm-hmm. like I like the, 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 the physical text. And look, uh, you know, the one great thing about uh, print publications is uh, Big Brother will never know what you're reading when. <laughs> Super good point. And, you, you know... Uh, Except they can track your shopping, probably. Well, it depends. If, if you, you buy it you on know, Amazon. Absolutely, or if you go down to your local indie. Mm-hmm. And pay in cash. Yeah, or just go to the library. <laughs> the you know, library. I mean, you know, don't have a track. Keep track of what you check out. I have out. rediscovered libraries having a book out, not as a reader, and it's made me ashamed of my lack of... Um, oh, really? Libraries do wonderful, wonderful things. But here's another way to look at it, because I've always been a huge library guy. Hmm. I love but I know now, since I started the Grotto, hmm. that every time I get a book out of the library, that author's not getting any money. I don't care. For each one that comes up. Well, you know, yeah. But, you know, but this, the library bought it. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. the thing. You know, was it John Updike? Well, of course, you know, maybe he could say this because he had the luxury of, of being mm-hmm. well compensated. But uh, I think he said once that his dream or his ideal was that he writes these books and somewhere... I want to say Midwest. I'm probably paraphrasing this or adding to it. Elabor- uh, you know. Um, anyway, he says that his idea is that somewhere, let's say in the Midwest, a 15 year old boy pulls his book from a library, and that's what he's. That's why he does it. It's for that. It's for the sort of um, finding the reader you never otherwise would find, right. or someone who may need this and not know that they need this. Someone living in, say, Plano, Texas. Exactly. I very very early when my book came out, a library in Plano, Texas acquired mm-hmm. it, and I had this. I mean, it, and I got like an alert saying they had, and I felt like it was real because it was in Plano, Texas. There you go. And someone reads that. It's say a young person very that. moving. Absolutely. And then they, they see possibilities and that I weren't there before. Of myself as a kid, I mean, libraries were everything. And there's no question yeah. books changed my life. Absolutely no question. It's a big I, deal, man. I, 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 you know, I couldn't agree more. But, but, but seriously, I'm, I'm telling you, uh, as things get more dystopian, uh, print may, uh, may rally yet. I don't think it's – first it of all, is. I have to say it's not a retreat. I don't think it's a yeah. retreat. No. But the selling point of you can pick this up and they will never know what you're reading is not to be easily dismissed. I've, the other thing is that print lasts. Paper lasts. We have paper you know, from Egypt. Personally, I just love the idea of giving the book away, mm-hmm. yeah. of being able to give it to someone. This is a great book. You've got to read it. And you can't really do that. Here's my, here's my iPad. Yeah. I should point out I still get – you know the newspaper delivered, so oh yeah, the, the okay. Chronicle and the Times delivered yeah. every day. I let go. Of that. I will say also, my book has reproductions that look much better on the iPad right. than in print. But so. you get that wonderful resolution. 
Yeah. But Oscar, it's interesting that you just use the word dystopian because mm-hmm. listening to you talk, I was just thinking, wow, this guy has really come through it with his idealism intact. I think when it comes to reading and when it comes to the purpose of literature. Well, you know, that validates itself. You know, something something that is uh, the essence of what it means to be human doesn't need. Um, you know, it doesn't need my. In other words, I don't have to feel uh, um, exalted necessarily. Well, no, let me back up. It's exalting to do those things, but mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you still can't see the, the cliff. Yeah, <laughs> you know, those these things are not incompatible. That is to say, that realizing you're going to a very, very dark, dangerous place, and you know, same time understanding the value of art and how that how that elevates us. Well, oh my God, that was beautiful. Thank you. That was. And it's got to, you know, it gets you through the day. I was just listening to a, a senator, I won't mention his name because he's a Republican, mm. being interviewed, talking about the value of work and the value of meaningful work and the value of feeling like you're doing something that needs to be done. Mm. And it seems like what you're telling me is you wake up in the morning and you feel, yeah, I'm doing something that needs to be done. I, I, I would like to think so. I mean, I think it is. I think that's the case. I think um, I have a vocation, and I think for, for people it's important to find out what your vocation is so that it doesn't feel like you're ever working. I, you know, this is kind of a side note. I just throw this out there. I always wonder, as you know, in our fair city we have a certain – culture clash with the with the with the techies you know oh, yeah. and et cetera et cetera and the one thing that I always think about is um, I remember what my 20s were like in the city uh, when I got here in late 95 and I remember how incredibly enjoyable that was partly because I was working at the San Francisco Chronicle which I loved and the city was well what it was in 95 um, and I think for them for the ones who are doing it but don't love tech that's to say they they're not mm-hmm. You know, the geeks. I think the ones who are the geeks are having time of their lives. I and mean, they probably won the lottery for all intents and purposes. You know, you get, you're doing what you love and getting paid bucket loads mm-hmm. of money. God bless you, you know. But for the ones who are not. Oh, it's soul killing. But do you think – and do you think – I have a quote here that you said, mm-hmm. Tony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. You said San Francisco is a city – it's about optimism and opportunity. That's true. And I remember that from my early 20s living here, feeling yeah. like every time I stepped out of my house, something exciting is going to happen today. It feels less so. It feels less so. But do you think for those, if you're a tech guy and you don't necessarily like your job, but you're here and you're in your 20s, I think it may feel less so for us because we're older, right. for, in part. Right. But is that enough for them? Does it give them that? So where they're like, you know, I, my job kind of sucks, mm. but I'm in this place and I'm fortunate enough to have the resources to enjoy it? We'll find out. Yeah, we'll see how they Cause, age. Cause, yeah, because the question is, you know, should some of these ever go belly up, will they stay? Um, I I have my own theory about that. You know, but I mean, we'll find out. I mean, I I will say this. I mean, I remember being 25 and 26 and being pretty, you know, wised up Mm -hmm. and uh, being able to see something. Go, Oh, no, that's not going to work. I can't believe that they don't also see that maybe for a lot of them they're producing nothing. That um, that 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 they are, you know, in essence, part of a sort of. Ponzi scheme. Um, There'll never be another barbecue.com. Well, you know, precisely. And and this is just, look, this is true for all of us. Think about when you're young. You knew some people were wised up and some people weren't for a variety of reasons. That's also when you figure out who among you are cynical, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who among you are the careerists, who among you are not what you thought. Um, That's all going to play out, I'm sure. It is playing out right now. The difference is, though, I think, is how much money is involved and how. 
how that money is upsetting the the balance. Um, you know, this was never a company town. Think about it. This was never really a company town. There was, people did all kinds of things mm-hmm. in San Francisco. There wasn't one industry that dominated. Well, you know, I was always <clears> – <throat> I'm kind of a contrarian, so I was always of the thought of like, well, people have always complained. Whoever's in San, whoever is, shows up in San Francisco, the people that are already there are going to tell them they're ruining it. Mm-hmm. It's been going on forever. Mm-hmm. But I, I do agree that it's gotten – there's definitely – I mean it's it, – there's very young people with a lot of money here and that is definitely having an impact that may be undoable. We'll see. I mean we'll you know, see. on the other hand, maybe they see something – maybe something of what made San Francisco its charm uh, obtains and they see that and they want to keep that going. Because there's a reason why they're here. Right. Or maybe not, but now there is. You yeah. know, they showed up for the job. Then they get here. And then hopefully some of this bohemianism or this contrarianism or remember the old saying what was it that you know if you're if you're um, and this is an old saying I should say at this point because I don't think it's probably not true anymore but there was a time when people used to say you know if you're um, ambitious but you're not smart you live in Los Angeles <laughs> if you're smart but not ambitious you live in San Francisco and if you're smart and ambitious you live in New York live in New York. That's funny. And I've never heard that. I before. haven't either, but I like it. Yeah, and uh, you know, maybe if that is still true, maybe the ones who are very smart and not that not that they're not ambitious, but maybe they prioritize what's important in life, what how you live, might be able to, to sort of, if you will, you know, take the baton and well, figure out a way to keep that going. I think one thing that'll be interesting, and I don't want to get too deep in this because we're running out of time, but. One thing that will be interesting is when this generation of young people who come here with a pretty, you know, with more money in their purse than previous generations, whether they leave when they get married and have kids. Because I, I stayed, you stayed, you're, you're in the city. Oh, yeah. And has kids. And it's a mm-hmm. definite dividing line. Oh, yeah. For sure. You know, people bail. The thing I worry about is I don't see value for culture. Mm. Um, from this generation of tech money that's here. I see value for very high-minded things, science, medicine, sometimes education. But if San Francisco doesn't value the arts, uh, I don't know. We're we, we in trouble. That's yeah. what makes San Francisco San Francisco to I, me. I, I think it's it's that, and it's also um, sort of the, you know, the, the city's idiosyncrasies that those are cherished. They don't want... One of the things that makes right. San Francisco so interesting is you don't want to pave everything over in terms of people. There's no homogeneity. And one of the things that being a one-industry town or seemingly one-industry town invites is that. Mm. We're, you know, we're, we're all wearing a hoodie. We're all doing this and that. And it's, it's, you know, it's off-putting because you know, part of what makes San Francisco unique is that you had all these different sort of social groups bumping heads. And all of this being said, let me remind listeners that everybody in this room is over 40. That's true. So we may be looking Some at you well know, over 40. Yeah, we may be filtering <laughs> it through that. But you're also, you know, you are perhaps one of the, one of the remaining old guard. You know, your job is to further literature and, and keep Whoa. the community of writers going in this sure. city. You know, it's, a, it's, it's I would say, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way, but I would say that I'm definitely um, invested in the city and invested in the culture and invested in trying to, you know, keep things as healthy as possible for literary culture, for the artistic culture, for people who still live in San Francisco. And there's fewer and fewer of us, to, you know, to be sure. And to that end, you know, what does, you know, I know you're starting to do um, 
workshops, more workshops, mm-hmm. but to, to that end, how is Ziziva seeing itself evolve in the coming years? <clears throat> well, I, uh, that's an interesting question. I, th- I think we see our mission as critical as ever, um, not least of which because of Trump. I think that, um, you know, uh, if, for people who want to do this, I think you go to our website. I think we posted a letter that Laura uh, 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 wrote um, after the election, and there's two of them. I think there's one that ran inside our uh, winter issue from last year, and then there's the one that ran just after uh, the election night. And all that stuff we still firmly believe. We still think that, uh, you know, one of the ways in which you're going to combat uh, let's say latent fascism, uh, authoritarianism, um, uh, incivility is going to be through the arts. It's going to be through keeping certain values alive or keeping them healthy as much as you possibly can. Um, I think for, for our winter issue that's, uh, that'll be coming out in December, that's going to be based on resistance. A lot of pieces around the various ways. Uh, isn't that sort of the silver lining for for artistic people? Whenever there's a disagreeable regime in place, the arts flourish. Well, they well they flourish only because they you know get, people say, well went wrong. They got bored under Obama. Well, you know, well it's what, what you say. You know, it's like uh, having a health scare. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, well, what, what caused that was X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And until you do something about these things, you're going to, you know, you're you're, you're going to be in a precarious situation. We're sort of basically sort of doing the same thing uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of, if you will, the political body of saying, you know, this is dire, mm-hmm. this is very, very bad, and uh, we recognize it's bad, and we, and so you're not crazy. We're not crazy. It is as bad as it seems, and this is why it's even more important than ever before to write what, we're, what you're writing and to communicate those things that you need to communicate in terms of the truth. Well said. I got nothing to add. And okay, fortunately, I'd like to add one okay. quick thing, though, um, just because I know Laura is going to be giving a Masterclass Mixer on July 15th. That's right. And I think it's worth saying because this is going to come out before that. Yes. If you are in San Francisco. Yes, you definitely should. I think that's uh, doing, uh, they're doing that through uh, Liquid. Right. Through one of theirs. Uh, she's a tremendous editor. I think uh, people would get a lot out of that. And it's a three-hour class about getting work published. So, mm-hmm. you know, take advantage if you're in this area or anywhere near. Oh, yes. Sign up. That is about it for us today. I personally would like to thank whoever invented doors that open, allowing air into very small and closed spaces. Yeah, we lived. Uh, Oscar, since you're known for your witty Twitterisms, mm. tell people <laughs> how me. they can find you on Twitter. Um, I'm at, I think, what, what am I? It's at O V alone, my last name, V-I-L-L-A-L-O-N. Okay. I hope you spelled that right because I once misspelled my name on there. Oh, it's – we'll find out. Yeah. And speaking of spelling, mm. give me the mm. Ziziva website. Sure. It's org, And it is a snouted beetle. It is a – yeah, I believe it's a tropical weevil. Yeah, a tropical weevil. It is very – I've seen pictures of it. It looks red. <laughs> Not native to San Francisco. No, 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 no. Clearly. And the last word in the dictionary. In most English dictionaries, yes, if they're if they're if they make the effort. You can follow the Grotto Pod at the Grotto Pod on Facebook, also slash Grotto Pod website, grottopod.com. As for me, you can find me at that Larry Rosen. If you can't get enough of the sound of my voice, which most people can't, let's be honest. <laughs> 
Go listen to Is It Good for the Jews? You can find us at isitgoodforthejews.com. That's my other podcast. BQ, how about you? I just want to say that I have to stop giggling into the mic. (laughs) No, giggle away, please. Uh, You can reach me at at BQuintrust on Instagram and Twitter or at BridgetQuintAuthor.com. But really, I want to thank Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingarner, and Lori Ann Doyle, our fabulous producers. Music by Sugartown. And listen up, Grotto Pod listeners, in coming weeks, we will start dropping. Is that the correct term? Mm -hmm. Launching, dropping. dropping. Mm -hmm. Uh, New Sugartown singles at the end of of, uh, episodes. So look for that in upcoming. Not this one, because we still working out some tech stuff but uh look for that later in july okay exciting that's it for us bq take us home thank you oscar oh you're welcome grotto land read write and just keep working 